Good evening, friends, and welcome to Sleepy Tom Tales, a podcast aimed at helping you to get a good night's sleep. Do you find your mind troubled with the stresses of modern life, especially when the lights are out and you're trying to get a restful night? Does your spinning mind keep you awake? Follow my voice down the path towards a good night's rest. Listen to me tell a story that will keep your mind from wandering to your daytime problems, the ones you can't solve right now, and will be easier to solve while rested. Listen to my voice and allow yourself to drift, following the twists and turns of the story, but slowly letting go and drifting into sleep. Let my voice wash over you at a comfortable volume and allow yourself to be distracted from the stresses and worries that play on your mind. Whether you need help falling asleep or going back to sleep in the middle of the night, you can trust me to keep you company and help you to wake up tomorrow in a rested state. You may need to try out Sleepy Time Tales for a few nights to get used to the slightly strange idea, but I believe it will be worth your while. I'm here to work with you, to create a safe space, a cocoon in which you can curl up and allow nature to take its course. So settle down, relax, and allow yourself to get lost in my telling of tonight's story. But before we get on with tonight's story, I'd like to ask for a couple of minutes of your time. If you're finding the podcast useful, if Sleepy Time Tales helps you to get a restful night, and you would like to keep it going to thousands of insomniacs just like you, and you have the means to help me keep it going, please consider supporting on the Patreon at patreon.com slash sleepytimetales. This is monthly support that helps me keep the lights on and gets you bonuses based on your contribution level, starting from as little as $2 a month. And if monthly seems a big ask, then you can make once-off tips through the tip jar on the website. Although I've tried a few sponsorships in the past, it doesn't really work for anybody, so Sleepy Time Tales is completely listener-supported. I don't get any kind of sponsorships, I've got a couple of little affiliate things which you'll see in the show notes. Otherwise, what keeps the show going is the generosity and support of my listeners. I have been struggling to keep it going a little bit, but I've had a lot of people step up and really help out, and I really appreciate that. So the show is not going to be going anywhere anytime soon but I would like to be able to take it on to the next level to get enough support that I can actually update and expand on what Sleepy Time Tales is and what I can do and I can do that with your help so please once again if you are able to support please don't feel guilty if you can't please consider supporting on the Patreon or throwing a little something in the tip jar to help me make this more sustainable and grow it into something very special and that's enough of that Let's get on to the story. After a bit of a long break, and I'm actually not sure why, we return to our mutual friend, Charles Dickens. A little winding through some muddy alleys that might have been deposited by the last ill-savoured tide brought them to the wicket gate and bright lamp of a police station, where they found the night inspector with a pen and ink and ruler, posting up his books in a whitewashed office, as studiously as if he were in a monastery on top of a mountain, and no howling fury of a drunken woman were banging herself against a cell door 
in the backyard at his elbow. With the same air of a recluse much given to study, he desisted from his books to bestow a distrustful nod of recognition upon Gaffer, plainly importing, Ah, we know all about you, and you'll overdo it some day. And to inform Mr. Mortimer Lightwood and friends that he would attend them immediately. Then he finished ruling the work he had in hand. It might have been illuminating a missile, he was so calm, in a very neat and methodical manner, showing not the slightest consciousness of the woman who was banging herself with increased violence and shrieking most terrifically for some other woman's lover. A bullseye, said the night inspector, taking up his keys, which a differential satellite produced. Now, gentlemen. With one of his keys, he opened a cool grot at the end of the yard, and they all went in. They quickly came out again, no one speaking but Eugene, who remarked to Mortimer in a whisper, not much worse than Lady Tippins. So, back to the whitewashed library of the monastery, with that liver still in shrieking requisition, as it had been loudly, while they looked at the silent sight they came to see. And there, through the merits of the case as summed up by the abbot, no clue to how the body came into the river. Very often was no clue. Too late to know for certain whether injuries received before or after death. One excellent surgical opinion said before, another excellent surgical opinion said after. Steward of ship in which gentleman came home passenger had been round to view, and could swear to identity. Likewise could swear to clothes. And then you see you had the papers too. How was it he had totally disappeared on leaving ship till found in river? Well, probably had been upon some little game. Probably thought it a harmless game. Wasn't up to things and turned out a fatal game. Inquest tomorrow and no doubt open verdict. It appears to have knocked your friend over. Knocked him completely off his legs, Mr. Inspector remarked, when he had finished his summing up. And has given him a bad turn, to be sure. This was said in a very low voice, and with a searching look. Not the first he had cast, at the stranger. Mr. Lightwood explained that it was no friend of his. Indeed, said Mr. Inspector, with an attentive ear. Where did you pick him up? Mr. Lightwood explained further. Mr. Inspector had delivered his summing up, and had added these words with his elbows leaning on his desk, and the fingers and thumb of his right hand, putting themselves to the fingers and thumb of his left. Mr. Inspector moved nothing but his eyes, as he now added, raising his voice. Turned you faint, sir. Seems you're not accustomed to this kind of work. The stranger, who was leaning against the chimney piece with drooping head, looked around and answered, No, it's a horrible sight. You expected to identify, I'm told, sir? Yes. Have you identified? 
No, it's a horrible sight. Oh, a horrible, horrible sight. Who did you think it might have been? asked Mr. Inspector. Give us a description, sir. Perhaps we can help you. No, no, said the stranger. It would be quite useless. Good night. Mr. Inspector had not moved and had given no order. But the satellite slipped his back against the wicket and laid his arm along the top of it and with his right hand turned the bullseye he had taken from his chief in quite a casual manner towards the stranger. You missed a friend, you know. Or you missed a foe, you know. Or you wouldn't have come here, you know. Well then, ain't it reasonable to ask, who was it? Thus Mr. Inspector. You must excuse my telling you. No class of man can understand better than you that families may not choose to publish their disagreements and misfortunes except on the last necessity. I do not dispute that you discharge your duty in asking me the question. You will not dispute my right to withhold the answer. Good night. Again he turned toward the wicket, where the satellite, with his eye upon his chief, remained a dumb statue. At least, said Mr. Inspector, you will not object to leave me your card, sir. I should not object if I had one, but I have not. He reddened and was much confused as he gave the answer. At least, said Mr. Inspector, with no change of voice or manner, you will not object to write down your name and address. Not at all. Mr. Inspector dipped a pen in his inkstand and deftly laid it on a piece of paper close beside him, then resumed his former attitude. The stranger stepped up to the desk and wrote in a rather tremulous hand. Mr. Inspector, taking sidelong note of every hair of his head when it was bent down for the purpose. Mr. Julius Hanford Exchequer Coffee House, Palace Yard, Westminster. Staying there, I presume, sir? Staying there. Consequently, from the country? Eh, yes, from the country. Good night, sir. The satellite removed his arm and opened the wicket, and Mr. Julius Handford went out. Reserve, said Mr. Inspector. Take care of this piece of paper. Keep him in view without giving offence. Ascertain that he is staying there and find out anything you can about him. The satellite was gone, and Mr. Inspector, becoming once again the quiet abbot of that monastery, dipped his pen in his ink and resumed his books. The two friends who had watched him, more amused by the professional manner than suspicious of Mr. Julius Handford, inquired before taking their departure too whether he believed there was anything that looked really bad here. The abbot replied with reticence, couldn't say. If a murder, anybody might have done it, 
burglary or pocket picking wanted apprenticeship. Not so murder. We were all of us up to that. Had seen scores of people come to identify and never saw one person struck in that particular way. Might, however, have been stomach and not mind. If so, rum stomach. But to be sure, there was rum everything's. There being nothing more to be done until the inquest was held next day, the friends went away together. And Gaffer Hexham and his son went to their separate way. But, arriving at the last corner, Gaffer bade his boy go home, while he turned into a red-curtained tavern that stood dropsically bulging over the causeway for half a pint. The boy lifted the latch she had lifted before and found her sister again, seated before the fire at her work, who raised her head upon his coming in and asking, Where'd you go, Liz? I went out in the dark. There was no necessity for that. It was all right enough. One of the gentlemen, the one who didn't speak while I was there, looked hard at me, and I was afraid he might know what my face meant. But there, don't mind me, Charlie. I was all in a tremble of another sort when you owed to father that you could write a little. Ah, uh, but I made believe I wrote so badly, as that it was odds if anyone could read it. And when I wrote slowest and smeared, but with my finger most, father was best pleased, as he stood looking over me. The girl put aside her work, and drawing her seat close to his seat by the fire, laid her arm gently on his shoulder. You'll make the most of your time, Charlie, won't you? Won't I? Come, I like that, don't I? Yes, Charlie, yes. You work hard at your learning, I know. And I work a little, Charlie, and plan and contrive a little. Wake out of my sleep contriving sometimes. How to get together a shilling now and a shilling then that shall make father believe you are beginning to earn a stray living along shore. You are father's favourite and can make him believe anything. I wish I could, Charlie, for if I could make him believe that learning was a good thing and that we might lead better lives, I should be most contented to die. Don't talk stuff about dying, Liz. She placed her hands in one another on his shoulder, and laying her rich brown cheek against him as she looked down at the fire, went on thoughtfully. Of an evening, Charlie, when you're at the school and father's at the Six Jolly Fellowship Porters, the boy struck in, with a backward nod of his head towards the public house. Yes. Then as I sit a-looking at the fire, I seem to see in the burning coal, like where that glow is now. That's gas, that is, said the boy, coming out of a bit of a forest that's been under the mud that was under the water in the days of Noah's Ark. Look here. And I take the poker so and give it a dig. Don't disturb it, Charlie, or it'll be all in a blaze. It's that dull glow near it, coming and going, that I mean. When I look at it of an evening, it comes like a picture to me, Charlie. 
Show us a picture, said the boy. Tell us where to look. Ah, at once my eyes, Charlie. Cut away, then, and tell us what your eyes make of it. Why, there are you and me, Charlie, when you were quite a baby that never knew a mother. Don't go saying I never knew a mother, interposed the boy, for I knew a little sister that was sister and mother both. The girl laughed delightedly, and her eyes filled with pleasant tears, as he put both his arms around her waist and so held her. There are you and me, Charlie, when father was away at work and locked us out, for fear we could should set ourselves afire or fall out of the window, sitting on the dorsal, sitting on other doorsteps, sitting on the bank of the river, wandering about to get through the time. You are rather heavy to carry, Charlie, and I am often obliged to rest. Sometimes we are sleepy and fall asleep together in a corner. Sometimes we are very hungry. Sometimes we are a little frightened. But what is oftenest hard upon us is the cold. You remember, Charlie? I remember, said the boy, pressing her to him twice or thrice, that I snuggled under a little shawl and it was warm there. Sometimes it rains and we creep under a boat or the like of that. Sometimes it's dark and we get among the gaslights, sitting watching the people as they go along the streets. At last up comes father and takes us home. And home seems such a shelter after out of doors. And father pulls my shoes off and dries my feet at the fire. And has me sit by him while he smokes his pipe long after you are bed. And I notice that father's is a large hand. But never a heavy one when it touches me. And that father's is a rough voice but never an angry one when it speaks to me. So I grow up, and little by little father trusts me, and makes me his companion, and, let him be put out as he may, never once strikes me. The listening boy gave a grunt here, as much as to say, but he strikes me though. Those are some of the pictures of what is past, Charlie. Cut away again, said the boy, and give us a fortune-telling one. A future one. Well, there I am, continuing with father and holding on to father, because father loves me and I love father. I can't so much as read a book, because if I had learned, father would have thought I was deserting him and I should have lost my influence. I have not the influence I want to have. I cannot stop some dreadful things I try to stop. But I go on in the hope and trust that the time will come. In the meanwhile, I know that I am in some things a state of father, and that if I was not faithful to him, he would. In revenge like or in disappointment or both, go wild and bad. Give us a touch of the fortune-telling pictures about me. I was passing on to them, Charlie, said the girl, who had not changed her attitude since she began, and who now mournfully shook her head. 
The others were all eating there. There are you. Where am I, Liz? Still in the hollow down by the flare. There seems to be juice and all in the hollow down by the flare, said the boy, glancing from her eyes to the brazier, which had a grisly skeleton look on its long, thin legs. There are you, Charlie, working your way in secret from father at the school. And you get prizes, and you go on better and better, and you come to be a... What was it you called it when you told me about that? Ha ha. Fortune-telling not know the name, cried the boy, seeming relieved by this default on the part of the hollow down by the flare. Pupil teacher. You come to be a pupil teacher, and you still go on better and better, and you rise to be a master full of learning and respect. But the secret has come to father's knowledge long before, and it has divided you from father, and from me. No, it hasn't. Yes, it has, Charlie. I see as plain as plain can be that your way is not ours, and that even if Father could be got to forgive your taking it, which he never could be, that way of yours would be darkened by our way. But I see too, Charlie. Still as plain as plain can be, Liz? asked the boy playfully. Ah, still that it is a great work to have cut you away from father's life, and to have made a new and good beginning. So there I am, Charlie, left alone with father, keeping him as straight as I can, watching for more influence than I have, and hoping that through some fortunate chance, or when he was ill, or when, I don't know what, I may turn him to wish to do better things. You said you couldn't read a book, Lizzie. Your library of books is the hollow down by the flare, I think. I should be very glad to be able to read real books. I feel my want of learning very much, Charlie. But I should feel it much more if I didn't know it to be a tie between me and father. Hark, father's tread. It being now past midnight, the bird of prey went straight to roost. At midday following, here reappeared the six jolly foolish reporters, in the character, not new to him, of a witness before a coroner's jury. Mr. Mortimer Lightwood, besides sustaining the character of one of the witnesses, doubled the part with that of the eminent solicitor who watched the proceedings on behalf of the representatives of the deceased, as was duly recorded in the newspapers. Mr. Inspector watched the proceedings too, and kept his watching closely to himself. Mr. Julius Handford, having given his right address, and being reported in solvent circumstances as to his bull, though nothing more was known of him at his hotel, except that his way of life was very retired, had no summons to appear, and was merely present in the shades of Mr. Inspector's mind. The case was made interesting to the public by Mr. Mortimer Lightwood's evidence, 
touching the circumstances under which the deceased, Mr. John Harmon, had returned to England. Exclusive private proprietorship in which circumstance was set up at dinner tables for several days. Boveneering, Twimlow, Podsnap, and all the buffers, who all related them irreconcilably with one another, and contradicted themselves. It was also made interesting by the testimony of Job Potterson, the ship's steward, and one Mr. Jacob Gibble, a fellow passenger, that the deceased Mr. John Harmon did bring over in a hand valise, with which he did disembark. The son realized by the forced sale of his little landed property, and that the sum exceeded, in ready money, seven hundred pounds. It was further made interesting by the remarkable experiences of Jesse Hexham, in having rescued from the Thames so many dead bodies, and for whose behoof a rapturous admirer subscribing himself, a friend to burial, perhaps an undertaker, sent eighteen postage stamps, and five Nasseurs to the editor of the Times. Upon the evidence adduced before them, the jury found that the body of Mr. John Harmon had been discovered floating in the Thames, in an advanced state of decay and much injured, and that the said Mr. John Harmon had come by his death under highly suspicious circumstances, though by whose act or in what precise manner there was no evidence before this jury to show. And they appended to their verdict a recommendation to the Home Office which Mr. Inspector appeared to think highly sensible, to offer a reward for the solution of the mystery. Within eight and forty hours, a reward of one hundred pounds was proclaimed, together with a free pardon to any person or persons, not the actual perpetrator or perpetrators, and so forth in the due form. This proclamation rendered Mr. Inspector additionally studious, and caused him to stand meditating on river stairs and causeways, and go lurking about in boats, putting this and that together. But according to the success with which you put this and that together, you get a woman and a fish apart, or a mermaid in combination. And Mr. Inspector could turn out nothing better than a mermaid, which no judge and jury would believe in. Thus, like the tides on which it had been borne to the knowledge of men, the Harmon murder, as it came to be popularly called, went up and down, and ebbed and flowed, now in the town, now in the country, now among palaces, now among hovels, now among lords and ladies and gentlefolks now among labourers and hammerers and ballast heavers, until at last, after a long interval of slack water, it got out to sea and drifted away. Chapter 4 The R. Wolfer Family Reginald Wolfer is a name with rather a grand sound, suggesting on first acquaintance brasses in country churches, Scrolls in stained glass windows, and generally the de Wolfers who came over with the Conqueror. 
For it is a remarkable fact in genealogy that no de anyone's ever came over with anyone else. But the Reginald Walther family were of such commonplace extraction and pursuits that their forefathers had for generations modestly subsisted on the docks, the excise office, and the custom house. And the existing R. Wolfer was a poor clerk. So poor a clerk, though, having a limited salary and an unlimited family, that he had never yet attained the modest object of his ambition, which was to wear a complete new suit of clothes, hat and boots included, at one time. His black hat was brown before he could afford a coat. His pantaloons were white at the seams and knees before he could buy a pair of boots. His boots had worn out before he could treat himself to new pantaloons. And by the time he worked around to the hat again, that shining modern article roofed in an ancient ruin of various periods. If the conventional cherub could ever grow up and be clothed, he might be photographed as a portrait of Wolfer. His chubby, smooth, innocent appearance was a reason for his always being treated with condescension when he was not put down. A stranger entering his own poor house at about 10 o'clock p.m. might have been surprised to find him sitting up to supper. So boyish was he in curves and proportions that his old schoolmaster, meeting him in Cheapside, might have been unable to withstand the temptation of caning him on the spot. In short, he was the conventional cherub, after the suppositious school just mentioned, rather grey with signs of care in his expression, and in decidedly insolvent circumstances. He was shy and unwilling to own to the name of Reginald, as being too aspiring and self-asserted a name. In his signature, he used only the initial R, and imparted what it really stood for, to none but chosen friends, under the seal of confidence. Out of this, the facetious habit had arisen in the neighbourhood surrounding Mincing Lane, of making Christian names for him, of adjectives and participles beginning with R. Some of these were more or less appropriate, as rusty, retiring, ruddy, round, ripe, ridiculous, ruminative. Others derived their point from their want of application, as raging, rattling, roaring, raffish. But his popular name was Rumty, which in a moment of inspiration had been bestowed upon him by gentlemen of convivial habits connected with the drug markets at the beginning of his social course, his leading part in the execution of which had led to this gentleman to the Temple of Flame, and of which the whole expressive burden ran, Rumty Editi, Rao Dao Dao, Sing Tiddly Tiddly Bow Wow Wow. Thus he was constantly addressed, even in minor notes on business, as Dear Rumty, in answer to which he sedately signed himself, Yours truly, R. Wolfer. He was clerk in the drug house of Chixie, Veneering and Stobbles, 
Chixie and Stobbles, his former masters, had both become absorbed in veneering. Once their traveller or commissioning agent had signalised his succession to extreme power by bringing into the business a quantity of plate glass window and French polished mahogany partition and a gleaming and enormous door plate. Our Wolfer locked up his desk one evening and putting his bunch of keys in his pocket, much as if it were his peg top, made for home. His home was in the Holloway region north of London, and then divided from it by fields and trees. Between Battlebridge and that part of the Holloway district in which he dwelt was an attractive suburban Sahara, where tiles and bricks were burnt, bones were boiled, carpets were beat, rubbish was shot. Dogs were fought and dust was heaped by contractors. Skirting the border of this desert by the way he took, when the lights of its kiln fires made lurid smears on the fog, our wolfer sighed and shook his head. Ah me, said he, what might have been is not what is. With which commentary on human life, Indicating an experience of it not exclusively his own, he made the best of his way to the end of his journey. Mrs. Wolfer was, of course, a tall woman and an angular. Her lord being cherubic, she was necessarily majestic, according to the principle which matrimonially unites contrasts. She was much given to tying her hair up in a pocket handkerchief knotted under the chin. This headgear, in conjunction with a pair of gloves worn within doors, she seemed to consider as at once a kind of armour against misfortune, invariably assuming it when in low spirits or difficulties, and as a species of full dress. It was therefore with some sinking of the spirit that her husband beheld her thus heroically attired, putting down her candle in the little hall, and coming down the doorsteps through that little front court to open the gate for him. Something had gone wrong with the house, for our wolfer stopped on the steps, staring at it, and cried, Halloa? Yes, said Mrs. Wolfer. The man came himself with a pair of pincers and took it off and took it away. He said that as he had no expectation of ever being paid for it, and as he had an order for another lady school door plate, it was better burnished up for the interests of all parties. Perhaps it was, my dear. What do you think? You are master here, R.W., returned his wife. It is as you think, not as I do. Perhaps it might have been better if the man had taken the door too. My dear, we couldn't have done without the door. Couldn't we? Why, my dear, could we? It is as you think, R.W., not as I do. With those submissive words, the dutiful wife preceded him down a few stairs to a little basement front room, half kitchen, half parlour, where a girl of about nineteen, with an exceedingly pretty face and figure, 
but with an impatient and petulant expression, both in her face and in her shoulders, which in her sex and at her age are very expressive of discontent, sat playing draughts with a younger girl, who was the youngest of the house of Walther. Not to encumber this page by telling of the Wolfers in detail and casting them up in the gross, it is enough for the present that the rest are what is called out in the world in various ways, and that there were many. So many that when one of his dutiful children called in to see him, our Wolfer generally seemed to say to himself, after a little mental arithmetic, Oh, here's another of them, before adding aloud, How to do, John or Susan? as the case may be. And with that little nugget of learning about the family, I think I'm going to call it a night. Thank you very much. As always, if you'd like to pick up where we're leaving off, you can find the original on Project Gutenberg at the link in the show notes. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Sleepy Time Tales, the podcast designed around a bedtime story to help you to get a restful night. New episodes will be released every Sunday night to give you something fresh to help you rest in a new week. But make sure to follow or subscribe in whatever service you use so that you get your new episode whenever they come out. Good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>